0: Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding, and now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. For decades, a controversial question has been whether selective colleges and universities should be permitted to consider race and ethnicity in admissions decisions. On one side, many argue that they should be allowed to do so in order to increase the racial and ethnic diversity of their student bodies, including recruiting more students from underrepresented groups, such as black Americans. On the other side, others argue that they should not be allowed to do so and that their decision should instead be based solely on merit. Indeed, Harvard University is the target of a lawsuit right now on this very issue. In order to explore this issue and to unpack the rarely defined term of merit, I spoke with Julie J. Park. Park is a UCLA PhD and an associate professor in the Department of Counseling, Higher Education, and Special Education in the University of Maryland College of Education. If you are interested in the affirmative action debate, especially the place of Asian Americans in that debate, or if you use the term merit, but you haven't thought long and hard about what you mean when you use that term, then our conversation is worth listening to. My conversation with Park is the basis of this episode, which is titled class action. And by way of background, I listen uh, to a podcast known as two psychologists for beers uh, so I was listening to an episode and they were discussing some provocative poll results from Gallup, where Gallup recently asked respondents the following question, quote, which comes closer to your view about evaluating students for admission into a college or university? Applicants should be admitted solely on the basis of merit, even if that results in few minority students being admitted Or an applicant's racial and ethnic background should be considered to help promote diversity on college campuses, even if that means admitting some minority students who otherwise would not be admitted. And 70% of respondents chose the solely on merit option. And my first question to you is, if you had a chance to speak to a respondent who took that position, is there anything you'd say to them or ask of them?
1: Sure. Well, I think I would rather speak to the people who worded the poll um, and how (laughs) that language was phrased. And it's funny because, you know, it's phrased in a way that casts these two things as mutually exclusive, right, diversity and merit. Um, And then furthermore, it's not providing a definition of how, um, you know, they would define merit. So I can imagine that um, the majority of people, when they hear merit, they're, you know, the assumption is just basically like, achievement, things that are good, et cetera, right? Merit has a lot of positive connotations, as it should. Um, And so I think it makes sense, right, for people to want to support that. And then the way that the other option was cast, of course, right, it makes it sound like basically you're choosing people almost solely on the basis of their race, ethnicity, uh, which is not what holistic admissions that is allowed to consider race does um, or what is legal under the law. So, yeah, I would say it's, it was really kind of a false choice or a setup um, that, um, yeah, is really misleading in some ways and doesn't really showcase, um, you know, what really the real the real picture of um, how admissions works. Um, yeah, I think if you maybe phrase those differently and you thought about, you know, well, what do you mean by merit, right? And so if you yep. gave people the option, like, what say, would you prefer a system where applicants are evaluated on the basis of their academic achievements and the context in which they were able to reach those achievements and many other traits, you know, in that whole list, um, including race, ethnicity, um, I think that might be a definition that more people might be comfortable with.
0: So then as a follow-up, just to make sure I'm clear on the meaning of that, would that with that alternative conception of merit uh, allow for a college or university say to consider an African-American applicant who has gone to a school in a say a poor county in Alabama that's been in a public school in a poor county in Alabama where because of the way we fund public schools has had very limited resources. If a student has say graduated near the top of their class even if their SAT scores might be lower than a white applicant from a prep school, the idea would be the fact that they managed to do so well despite the limited resources of the school should be a tip in their favor. Is that something that you're implying?
1: Um, I mean, you know, applicants I think are rare. In I get what you're asking. And to kind of dig deeper, I think, Applicants are rarely like, well, it's this person or it's this person, yeah. right, in admissions, yeah. and then we're going to go with this person. But in the broad sense of things, would it mean giving potential special consideration to that applicant who came from a low-income high school and had very few opportunities? And it would, would it mean giving their application a closer look beyond just the surface level SAT score? Um, yes, I think so. None of that you know, none of the information you provided me suggests that any student should be automatically still admitted or denied, right? Sure. You still have to look at the other particulars of the student's experience, their teacher recommendations, their essay, have they made meaning of all of this. Um, but would I favor approach that says, let's look beyond the test score, right? Let's look closer and more holistically at who this student is and where he or she came from, then absolutely, yes, I would support that.
0: One of the things that I came across was a chapter by the economist Amartya Sen in which he writes about meritocracy and about the notion of merit. And at one point he says, quote, I shall argue that meritocracy and more generally the practice of rewarding merit is essentially underdefined. So merit and meritocracy are underdefined, and we cannot be sure about its content and thus about the claims regarding its justice, justice in scare quotes. Until some further specifications are made concerning, in particular, the the objectives to be pursued in terms of which merit is to be ultimately judged. And finally, he says, the merit of actions and derivatively that of persons performing actions cannot be judged independent of the way we understand the nature of a good or an acceptable society. So, in quote. So, what I hear Sen saying is, if we're going to actually construct a working definition of merit, it has to be defined relative to the purpose that you assume uh, in the case of college and university admissions, the purpose that admissions decisions are meant to serve, perhaps more broadly, the purpose that education is meant to serve. And ultimately, uh, your conception of the good society or acceptable society is going to inform your understanding of what merit means. I wonder if you agree with what Sen is saying, and if so, if you could tell me why.
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, the quote is very rich. And if I understand it correctly, in a nutshell, I think Sen is trying to communicate something around that merit is contextual, right? Um, It's not a one-size-fits-all thing, and it really is a product, or defined um, in some ways by the things that a particular society values, or says that they want to uphold, and so it's tricky because merit is a word that gets thrown around, and a lot of people without a further definition, right? So it's just like merit, merit, and it's who's going to say like, oh, I'm against merit, right? Yeah. No one is, hopefully, against merit. But then you know, if we dig a little deeper, we might see that people might have differing um, definitions, right? Of how they see merit, and the one that I think you know is probably most popularly used right is what I would call a more narrow conception yeah. of merit or uh, a narrow and sort of standardized a, met- um, a a narrow definition that reflects standardized uh, measures of merit right so that would be naming test scores um and to some extent things like gPA class rank et cetera and it's not that those things aren't good and helpful um. You know, material for admissions officers um, and others who are trying to evaluate students, but should those be the sole indicators of merit? Um, I would potentially disagree. Um, Actually, I do disagree. (laughs) Not potentially, I I do disagree (laughs) that those should be the sole indicators of merit um, for a variety of reasons, some of which you've touched upon that, um, yeah, that resources are so inequitable in this country that a thing like the SAT, which is a so-called standardized test, um, is, you know, not necessarily the best reflection of um, the both the achievements and the potential of a student. It's not, you know, you're not always comparing apples to apples, unfortunately.
0: So, and just to build on that, and this is less a question than a comment, part of my frustration with the position that has been taken by some, in some cases, high profile critics of the consideration of race and ethnicity, where they say it's just merit. And I think for many of them, they at least imply that merit is test scores and GPA. Even if you take that position, there are still definitional questions that remain because you have to decide how you're going to weight test scores against GPA class rank and so forth. So merit is celebrated as this unqualified good, but it's still, again, borrow Sin's conception, or Sim's terminology, it's underdefined.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting comment. You know, it makes me think that when people talk about merit, they should be forced to at least say, you know, if what they mean really is something like, standardized test scores and GPA, they should say narrow marriage, or there should be some other shorthand to define that. Um, But I agree that even within that camp, there's quite a variety of disagreement, Um, although they might say that they agree more with each other than perhaps someone like me who thinks that they should look outside the box. And one one example might be some of the proponents of, um, you know, the so-called theory of mismatch, which argues that Mm students of color are in over of their heads at elite institutions and generally should not be at these institutions. And so it's interesting because some in, um, if you read, um, the book mismatch, basically it's called Mismatch by uh, Richard standard and Richard standard of UCLA and Stuart Taylor. They talk about how, you know, some States have, so their main, you know, one of the things they advocate for is, um, to uh end the consideration of race in uh, the ability to consider race as one of many factors in college admission so they argue against affirmative action in general well it's interesting because some of the states that they discuss have you're not allowed at the time of writing we're not allowed to uh, consider race in their admissions policies so California and then at the time Texas which yeah. has since changed um, policy um since then, but right. So Texas having the ten percent plan, and California having uh, race ne- race neutral admissions uh, since Prop 209 passed in nineteen ninety six. Uh, just for the just, Miller, for the just just for the just
0: just for the benefit of listeners who aren't familiar with it, briefly define the ten percent plan.
1: Yeah, the ten percent plan was a shift that happened in Texas where um, for admissions to the um, the most elite institution uh, or the sort of the most competitive state institution. UT Austin, uh, moved to, uh, admissions plan where if you were admitted in, if you were in the top 10% of your high school class, um, in Texas, you pretty much automatically received admission. Um, there have been some shifts since then. Uh, I believe it's like now it's like the top 8% or something like that. They had to winnow it down because Texas has so many people. Um, and then also with the rulings, um, the more recent rulings, um, Supreme Court decisions, those things gave Texas the ability to um, be able to consider race um, in admissions again, which they chose to do for a very small portion of their class, which is actually what produced the the Fisher lawsuits um, that Texas uh, was affirmed in the Supreme Court in their ability to consider race as one of many factors. But anyway, going back to all of that, all, all of this is to say these are examples of where Um, In the mismatch book, you know, Sandra and Taylor talk about how they're not happy about what happened in Texas and California, or they feel that the student bodies, um, you know, that they feel that mismatch is still a big problem at these schools. And I was like, wait, I thought that you wanted to, you know, ban the consideration of race. And they did. But, you know, all these institutions have taken different, differing ways, even without being able to consider race, right, they, with Texas relying more on class rank, and UCLA moving towards a holistic review um, that excludes race, but takes many other factors into account. And so I'd say Texas probably When it was at the 10% plan, is something that's uh, most closely paralleling a narrow conception of merit. Um, But then even people might disagree on whether that is okay or not. Among those, who favor narrow conceptions because Mm -hmm. some people might say, well, you don't have the SAT, right? And so how are you uh, screening in some way? Um, So it's interesting that people even within that camp, the narrow conception camp, will disagree on things.
0: And when you talk about this mismatch theory, I'm reminded of a book I read, oh gosh, I think it's been over a decade now, uh, The Shape of the River by Bowen and Bach. And they, in their analyses, considered what I think they called the fit hypothesis, but it's simply, sim- it's essentially this mismatch idea where, mm-hmm. as critics of affirmative action has, have argued, Students with, in their view, marginal academic backgrounds who are lower on measures of merit, such as standardized test scores, would actually do better if they went to less selective institutions where they are less mismatched, not over their head, as you said. They're a better fit in terms of their academic preparation. But even if that were true, all else being equal, As Bowen and Bach note, all else is not equal because highly selective institutions also tend to often have more resources than less selective institutions and therefore have more resources to, say, support tutoring programs, mentoring programs that can actually help students, even if they are in a more challenging background, than they would be elsewhere, help them succeed. And so that's another frustration of mine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one important set of points. Um, I mean, there are a lot of issues with the, the mismatch argument, and so I have a book that comes out next month.
0: Oh, congratulations.
1: <laughs> title, Race on Campus, School and Debunking Myths with Data. And so there's a chapter dedicated to critiquing the mismatch camp and um, the work that they've kind of uh, produced to support the theory of mismatch. But there are a lot of people who've done great research, um, even very recently, um, that that really you know unpacks mismatch and shows the weaknesses of the argument
0: so shifting gears, as you know, and as some listeners will know, Harvard has been in the news because. They have been the target of uh, and are the target of a lawsuit challenging their consideration of race and ethnicity in admissions. And interestingly, unlike, say, the Abigail Fisher case, where the the student who is or set of students who are uh, arguably harmed by the consideration of race are white in this case, uh, the organization that has been uh, challenging Harvard. That organization is Students for Fair Admissions. And by the way, the president of that organization, Edward Bloom, is a part-time resident of Maine, which is where I live. And he has been, according to the Portland Press-Herald, quote, challenging race-based policies for more than 25 years, end quote. Uh, the organization that has been uh, challenging Harvard has been arguing that Asian-Americans are actually uh, hurt by policies that consider race and that uh, don't consider uh, as much as uh, might, uh, uh, in the view of these critics, be ideal, consider uh, test scores. So, Asian-Americans who, uh, say, get perfect scores in the SAT, may not be admitted to Harvard when, say, African-American or Latino, Latino students with lower test scores are admitted. So having set the stage there, I, I'm reminded that you've actually uh, written a paper uh, that draws on critical race theory to talk about the, the relationship between Asian-Americans and affirmative action. And so I wonder... I wonder if you could talk briefly about what you think critical race theory has to say about the relationships between Asian Americans and affirmative action.
1: Uh, so, before continuing, um, I'll give a – so, yes, I have lots of thoughts on this Harvard case. Um, and so, before continuing, I should give my standard disclaimer, which was that I served as a consulting expert on this case. Um, so, anything said here reflects my own views. They don't reflect any views that were held by Harvard um, or anything that I learned during the course of my engagement. I should also clarify that I served um, – in my work, I served um, in support of Harvard. Um, okay. so um, and so, yeah, it's funny to look back on that article because, um, I think it came out in 2014, but in, you know, with academic timelines, that mean it, that means it was written in a long time ago, yeah. like, uh, the early drafts were written probably in 2011, 2012, when, um, you know, when that, when Ed Bloom was busy with Fisher, <laughs> Fisher 1 and then Fisher 2, and so he finally got his act together, though, I think, and, uh, picked some more sympathetic plaintiffs, at least, um although I still, you know, absolutely disagree with uh, his arguments and the arguments of his organization, uh, Students for Fair Admission. But anyway, uh, looking back at the, arg- the article um, that used the critical race theory framework and influence, um, what we, my co-author Amy Liu and I argued was that um, any sort of alignment between – Asian Americans and the anti-affirmative action movement represented uh, what the critical race theorists would call interest convergence, which is basically the idea that um, people are not, people, especially those in the position of the majority or the elite, um, oftentimes white people, not always, but oftentimes are not going to get on board with supporting um a cause of um, the disenfranchised or people of color, or communities of color, unless there's some sort of strategic interest to them. And so with that, we argue that at the time that, you know, and continuing still, um, that the potential of anti-Asian bias and admissions um, is something that should be attended to and looked out for, et cetera but that we argue that the only way that the anti-affirmative action movement was finally going to realize (laughs) that these Asian Americans who have higher test scores and at least standardized metrics of achievement would actually make a stronger case probably against affirmative action than the people that they tended to pick, which were... white women, a string of white women who had, like, B averages, etc. And so we commented on, interestingly, at the time, this hadn't happened, but if it were to happen, it would probably represent a case of interest conversions, where, actually, it's not that the conservative movement um, has suddenly realized, oh, we really care about (laughs) Asian Americans and their (laughs) well-being, and that they're being treated as individuals, etc. It was, you know, nothing else has worked. Um, so who can we turn to next? Yeah. And, you know, and that was a very strategic interest. And I think it's one that from their side, you know, makes sense. Right. Um, but then at the same time, I think there are still compelling arguments um, against uh, the idea that Asian-Americans uh, undermine or are evidence that affirmative action and race conscious admission um, result in unfair policies. In fact, I would, I do, and in my book and in other places, argue the counter, that Asian Americans actually benefit from race-conscious admissions. They may benefit directly, they benefit from the diverse learning environments that come out of affirmative um, action-related policies and the like.
0: So in that article, you refer to this concept that you call negative action. Can you talk about what negative action is and what's your evidence for it?
1: Yeah, uh, it's interesting because some of my thinking, I think, has really actually even changed since that article. But um, negative action is a term that was first defined in the literature, I think, in 1996 by Jerry Kung, um, who's now uh, who's a professor at law of law at UCLA, and now is uh, their VP for equity or something in that ballpark is his title. And so at the time, he talked about how um, Asian Americans um, were not hurt in you know in any systemic way from race-conscious admissions from affirmative action policies because um, affirmative action, you know, in particular affects, directly affects with underrepresented minority students, a relatively small portion of students. And so what he suggested was that more likely there could be a possibility that Asian Americans could be potentially disadvantaged vis-a-vis whites um, in the admissions policy. And so he defined negative action as a process that would be happening if whites and Asian-Americans with basically, you know, identical or very similar accomplishments and achievements and everything good up and down the line, um, if white students were more likely to get in than Asian-Americans. And so that's what he defined as negative action. Um, what I think, you know, in that paper, I play around with that. We do suggest that negative action could be something that's going on. Um, And I will say something that's interesting is that when uh, Professor Kong wrote that first article, in a lot of admission systems, especially in the University of California system at the time, prior to that, the admission system ran in such a way that negative action was something that could be a lot easier to spot because admissions was done in a more standardized way prior especially to Prop 209 where you had more of sort of a points-based system Um, for the ginormous UC system where it was kind of like, okay, if you, you know, you get these points for having these academic accomplishments and for these extracurriculars and others, et cetera. So you have a more formulaic approach. And with that, you, it should have theoretically been easier to spot something like negative action because you could really kind of compare students with similar metrics and say, hey, you know, if, Asian American students are not getting in, you know, as high of a rate, et cetera, when they have these similar accomplishments, then there must be something worrisome. Fast forward to the current situation with Harvard, um, it's a lot more difficult. It's not, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I think it's a lot more difficult to spot negative action in that way, because Harvard does such an individualized and now the UC actually does a much more individualized holistic review where students are really evaluated individually with all of their traits and it's not just this formula that's kind of ranking students. Um, Although um, I think some of the, you know, the models that have been run by the economists um, involved in the case, especially I would say on on the side of Students for Fair Admissions, Um, I think that's sort of what they're trying to do. (laughs) Um, But, you know, both from personal experience and from talking with admissions officers, admissions is a lot um, messier, I think, than just, you know, the idea that, oh, you have two students. One is going to get it. One is not going to get it because of X, Y, Z. It's actually a much more individualized process than that.
0: Suppose that Harvard loses and that a consequence of that is that selective colleges and universities cannot consider race or ethnicity in admissions. What will the consequences be?
1: Yeah, I think there will be tremendous consequences for um, enrollment. um, And Harvard has provided some numbers. I don't know off the top of my head, but projecting that there would be some pretty notable declines, um, in their ability to uh, enroll underrepresented minority groups. I think you would have students, um, yeah, who would potentially not be having as rich of a learning experience um, just due to the the difficulty in being able to recruit and retain underrepresented minority students um, because we know from the research that it's really important to be able to just not just say, okay, we have this small number that we were able to get, but it's really important to have a broader community, a critical mass of students where, um, you know, students don't feel like they're the only black student or the only uh, Latinx student in their classes. Um, The other big repercussions might be for the universities themselves, where we have Liliana Garstis at uh, UT Austin has done, and Courtney uh, Cogburn, I believe, from Columbia, did a great piece that showed that they did a great piece showing that at universities where there had been bans on um, being able to consider race, that it basically resulted in a great silencing um, and a difficulty of... um, for administrators to be able to talk about race um, and how it affected the campus, because there was so much concern, understandably, about, you know, the legal parameters and other things. And so that also affected the climate in different ways in terms of how, um, you know, both faculty and administrators were able to talk about some of the frank inequalities um, that were affecting campus. Um, And so that's another um, side effect that could Uh, That we could see. But most, I think, you know, most concerningly, of course, would be the drop in, the likely drop in enrollment, Um, and then with that, the threat to critical masses of underrepresented minority students on college campuses.
0: That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Julie Park for taking the time to talk with me. Check out tatter.fireside.fm and go to the page for this episode for links to information about Park, including that new book that's coming out, in addition to other links mentioned in the episode. As always, to offer feedback on this or any episode, use Twitter. The handle is at tatter underscore rags. You can also go to iTunes and post a review. Also, although I haven't gotten a review yet from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, not to my knowledge anyway, I recently realized that she has grounds to give me a negative review. I screwed up in a recent episode. I attributed a quote to her about the importance of judicial empathy, which she did not actually say. The quote that I had in mind was actually uttered by President Obama. I doubt that either will hear it, but just in case I wanted to get things right. With that said, to offer monetary support, so if you want to make sure that I feel appreciated as the producer and host of Tatter, if you want to make sure that I can actually purchase an occasional coffee or a more than occasional beer, go to patreon.com slash tatter where you can pledge support. In any case, thanks for listening and be well.